ladies and gentlemen, you have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore the dynamics of human courage in its most dynamic form, personal transformation. What does it take to dive into the unknown of ourselves? Who can help us get there? How scary is it to face our own edge? And what are the magic tools that we can use today to explore ourselves on this journey of healing just a little bit more? Today's guest is a really special one. It's a woman that has tons of courage that inspires me every day and keeps me hopeful. And that guest is myself. So I wanted to share a little bit about my story and the miracles that happened to me along the way. This is just a small bit of it, but you're really going to love it. So enjoy. Hi, everybody. I've had so much fun recording other people's stories and they're just beautiful. Storytelling is this art that can move us into places and dimensions and to places of compassion that we didn't even know existed within us. But I wanted to go back and share a little bit of my own story, which I haven't done before. And I'm alone today, so this is just me, no questions. Starting back when I was a little girl, um, I remember my earliest memories being at my grandma's house and she would vacuum her house and I would ride on her vacuum cleaner. And I remember drawing pictures of sons and um, I just loved drawing pictures of sons. Also, I remember being in kindergarten and I messed up one time when I was writing my name and I turned my name into a heart and then I was so proud of myself because I was able to take that air and shift it into something cool. Um, When I was a little girl, my father's name was Tom. And he was, uh, he's alive still, but he was the brightest light in my world. And you know how they often say that we choose our parents. Well, I know why I chose my dad because I was, I am a pretty bright light of soul myself. And my dad was a rock star, literally. He played music. He was gregarious. He was so full of humor, so full of love, so full of laughter. Just the the lighthearted light of the party, of the house, of everything. He was always getting everybody to laugh. And his easygoingness was incredible. So it was great, but my um, mother and my father divorced when I was pretty young, um, about two years old. And so I began to see less and less of my dad. And my mom found another man and we moved kind of a little bit far. So I wasn't seeing my dad as often. And when I would come to Los Angeles where my dad lived, he would lock his bedroom door a lot. And he was, you know, behind that locked bedroom door. Um, And one day I was on my porch with my cousin Jamie and um, my Nana's porch because I, my dad was at my Nana's house a lot of the time. My Nana was a wonderful woman and just had this great house in Los Angeles. And so my dad, when he was figuring out stuff, would often be living there. And on that porch, my, um, I asked my cousin, you know, why is he always behind that locked door? And she goes, don't you know? And I go, what? And she goes, your dad is a drug addict. And I died inside. I mean, it was devastating. I remember the way my body was held in that moment. Like my light, the light of my entire world was a drug addict. And I knew enough that, you know, from the 
um, drug-free campaigns that were ran by um, Bush back then, those D.A.R.E. programs, that drugs were really, really bad. So I had this simultaneous um, death of my fantasy and connection of my dad, but also that same trip and that same cousin took me out with some older boys um, a couple days later, and we drove around in their car and listened to Beastie Boy songs. And um, it was the first time that I like jammed out with older kids to Brass Mon- Monkey and um, through the streets of LA. I ended up going back home to my mom, and that was a, it's a little bit of a turbulent childhood then because my um, stepdad was drinking at that time, and he would get blackout drunk, and so that was pretty scary. And he moved through all sorts of different layers of addiction, and my mom was just this chronic victim, so she wasn't much available. So as time went on, um, I felt this giant hole in my life because my dad was gone and my longing for him was the biggest longing, the biggest hole ripped in the universe was my dad. My fantasies at school were constantly visualizing my dad's truck. If I could make it come true, I visualized it. If If little kids could manifest their dreams to come true, I was busy on the playground manifesting my ass off. Um, one time at that same school, I just remember being on a swing set and just visualizing my dad coming. And it was, I was still so young that I remember having an accident and peeing my pants and, um, having to be walked home by the principal. And as the principal walked me to the office, I had my, my soaking wet underwear bunched in one hand. And he said to me, what's in your hand? And I was so humiliated. And I opened my little hand and there was my underwear drenched in pee (laughs) in my fist. Oh, the things I remember. So things were a little crazy. And then, you know, as I started to grow up, I needed to fill that hole. So I dove into being boy crazy and I wanted to rush my childhood with a ferociousness that just I don't see in any of the children that I raise now. Um, My rush to grow up was just insane. So I filled it with anything I could. Yet I never fit in. I was just always this bright light. And, um, you know, it sounds, it maybe sounds arrogant to say that, but it's totally just who I am. And those who know me know it. So it was hard because I was in um, Gardnerville, Nevada. And that place is just like, oh God, just plumb full of these broken kids. There was nothing there um, to resonate with. There was no one to resonate with. And, um, I did end up running away to my boyfriend's house. And when I ran away, um, I, my mom was devastated, of course, as any mom would be, but she ended up calling the police. Cause I think I was gone for like three days. And, um, the word got out that I was hiding out in the empty house next to my boyfriend's house. And I was in the closet and anyway, the cops pull, pulled up and I had to turn myself in. And I ended up getting on probation at that time. And it was a miracle because my probation officer um, was all about, he was a total climber and a total hippie, but he was all about the outdoors. And Douglas County had just initiated this outdoor program and the wilderness program for kids where they would get these troubled kids and bring them outside and get them outdoors. And I was like, what? I got to go climbing and I went backpacking days and days in Death Valley. And I was just so brought back alive. It was just great, but you know, it was still hard. I still felt like I was dying. And, um, you know, like some teenagers can feel when they just are 
are at home and there's no one to connect to or the only people available to connect to are kind of broken and all the kids are just kind of lost. It was just a cesspool of this lostness. And so eventually I got to um, go to my aunt's property in the Santa Cruz Mountains, this property called um, Last Chance, with a, which is six miles um, north of Davenport. And it's just one of, one of the first off-the-grid communities in all of California. My aunt was one of my greatest heroes. So she got that land. She was just this crazy hippie that was just determined as fuck and um, definitely feels some of that in my blood. So I was brought out there. I just got, I just swallowed just the biggest dose of nature, the redwoods and everything. And then on my uh, 16th birthday, there was happened to be a rainbow gathering on the beach of Davenport. And uh, of course I had to go there and I met some of the best friends of my life. And I turned 16 and my life just lit up, lit up. Um, And then, so I kind of went on this adventure and I, um, joined these people called the fatty egg girl people and started vendoring food at festivals. We drove all over the country. I wasn't in school. I worked and I just did what I wanted to do. So at that point I was still just a dropout. Um, but I was just having the time of my life and I liked to play the drums. So I would take my drum, like when we were at Niagara Falls, I would just play my djembe and I would just feel so fierce and so on fire. I just got in touch again with this spirit, this light that was just a little bit ferocious and a little bit badass. But it was hard, you know, I ended up breaking up with my boyfriend and I was like, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm you know, I can't really rent a place. I'm only 17. Nobody will rent to me. I can't go home. You know, what am I going to do? And the friends that I had met on the beach of Davenport during that rainbow gathering, Janelle and Kirid, which whom live down the street from me now, were just fantastic. Um, we were sitting down and, and bless their hearts for always being there for me. Um, and Kirid, this tall, quiet, amazing soul was like, I think you should go to Kauai. And I was like, okay. And he goes, and I think you should go to the North Shore. And I found a little map of Kauai and we looked at the North Shore. And and so I decided I was going to do it. And they were amazing adventurers themselves. And they had just got back from a backpacking trip uh, in Europe, a biking trip where they just had an incredible adventure. So we just talked all about camping and I got um, dehydrated foods. I had a stove. I had everything I would need to completely live out of my backpacker's backpack. So at 17 years old, I um, flew to Kauai and by myself. And when that plane landed, I felt like my soul lifted off and I got off that plane and I didn't know what would happen, but it didn't matter because at that moment I could be anybody that I wanted to be. And I was flooded with inspiration and passion and life and light. And so I walked off that plane one of my bags was lost, but it didn't matter. It was just another piece of me that was falling away. And I got out to the road in Lahui and I stuck my thumb out and hitchhiked, began the long hitchhike it takes to take to get to the North Shore. And somebody asked my name and I had changed it to Loki, L-O-K-I. And that was the beginning of this amazing adventure. I get all the way to the North Shore and I start to hear talk about Kalau Valley. Kalau Valley was the place, you know, here I am. I'm on a spiritual mission. Like I'm going all the way, like I'm all in. And, um, 
you know, at uh, Hana Beach is the beach at the end of the, the road at, um, in Kauai. And that's when, you know, everybody's getting ready to get do the 12 mile hike into Kalau Valley, which is like this incredible sacred journey, um, super spiritual place to all the locals there. So I'm in. So I meet a man and um, he's going in and we just decide we're going to hike together for my first time. And so I was psyched to have the company because that crazy boy crazy in me hadn't gone away. Um, and I got all the way in and we went our separate ways. And I spent three months straight living in this jungle with no ability to communicate to the outside world with no friends and nothing to survive out of my backpack. When I originally got to the jungle, I was so elated to be there. And I just also incredibly desperate for human connection. I, I mean, I was looking for that my entire life. And so I remember walking around the jungle saying, Marco, Marco, hoping that somebody would say polo so I could, you know, make a friend and connect. Eventually I met people, but there was a lot of lonely nights camping under the mango trees. The rangers would patrol the area in their helicopters. And so I would always, you know, you know, you have to hide because we were all unpermitted and they would ticket you and take you out if they, if they caught you. I remember covering myself in mud. I remember meeting women and, and braiding our hair. We would dig pits to go to the bathroom and make composting toilets and have fires and sing songs and make pancakes together. And there were these magical little structures all throughout Kala Valley. And there was even a garden and a couple who had this um, goat. And um, this little goat would follow them around. It was amazing. I had so much fun, but eventually I got tired of filtering my water. And I was just drinking out of this, um, this waterfall and I ended up getting kind of sick and feeling weak. And I just, I needed to get out and I was getting too weak that I couldn't really hike out, or at least I felt like I couldn't make the hike. I probably could have. So this woman, um, a young woman, a little bit larger size was like, okay, you know what? The kayakers come to the beach, um, in Kalau, there's a beach and, you know, they come once a week. So what we can do is we can, when they come, we'll ask to borrow their kayak. We'll kayak you out to the ocean and then we'll hitchhike you out on one of the tourist boats. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You know, that morning launching our kayaks through the breaks was crazy. They were really, really crazy breaks, but we were prepared. We had fresh ginger. We had everything we needed. But that day, for some reason, the tourist boats didn't come around right away. It took them a really, really long time. So we were out there for hours, super seasick. And my big black backpack, I kept on trading backpacks to try to get the best fit because the hikes were so strenuous. We had to have the perfect fit. And, um, you know, my backpack started to get full of water and sink a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And in that backpack was all the money I owned, all the clothes I had, everything I had. And finally, um, a tour, tour boat comes around. But what I didn't mention is the woman that decided to kayak me out. She must have been 22 at the time. And there I was 17. Um, she was completely naked. So here I am on a kayak with a completely naked young woman. And we start flagging down the tourist boat. And we're like, hey, hey, I need a ride. You know, I was drinking the water. And anyway, they grab me up, they get my sopping wet bag, bring me aboard, give me a sandwich and a soda, and drive me to the other side of the island where I was finally able to call my mom. Um, 
And then things got a little bit more normal. I got some jobs. I was, you know, picking snails out of tarot for rent trades. So you're ankle deep in this muddy water and all these snails come and want to eat the tarot. And tarot is like the Hawaiian potato. So I was just chucking all these snails in a bag and letting them rot. And, um, and I was working at the Hanalei Natural Foods and I had all these great, great jobs and finally got a job at the restaurant that I wanted called the Dolphin. And I thought that was just it. I was so psyched to be there. But um, I had run in a run in with a man who was the spiritual channeler. I was always attracted to anything a little bit extraordinary and uh, met up with him. But we ended up having like a brief fling. And so I, I slept with him one night and um, like a month or, or a month later on Mother's Day, I realized it was Mother's Day and I realized I was late for my period and I was went to the um, store took a pregnancy test and in the bathroom on mother's day, I realized I was pregnant and I was like, fuck. I, the man turned out to be a little bit wild and I was like, and crazy. And I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? This is terrible. But I knew that it was a boy and I knew I had to have him at that time. I had a little black dog, Cindy Lou and um, Cindy Lou was the best dog because she would hitchhike with me all over the island and be right at the, um, right behind me. I wouldn't even have her on a leash. I knew she would be right behind me. We were so, so, so close. And I was living next to the um, drummer of the Grateful Dead um, in Kilauea. And so there was this bus that they actually traveled in called the Moody Blue that I was renting that was turned into a little house, um, super neat by a river with an outdoor bathtub. But I knew I had, I called my mom and my mom was like, no matter what you decide, I'm here to support you. And I knew I had to leave. So I ended up having to leave my dog um, with the man that, you know, we, I had the fling with and I left my drum and I flew home and to, to Gardnerville, Nevada, to that, to that empty place that was just so, so hopeless. And, um, it was one of the hardest things that I have ever had to do because I was so, so close to that dog, but I knew my purpose was in my belly and there was no doubt about that. So I got a job at a, a retirement home and um, completed my pregnancy there. But when I first got home to Gardnerville, Nevada, I got really super sick. One of the sickest I have ever been in my life. Um, and I thought I was going to lose the baby, but I didn't. And I was terrified. I mean, being a single mom, everything shifting that quickly for me was one of the scariest times of my life. And in Gardnerville, you're looking at the Sierra Mountains. And I just remember going for walks outside and looking at those mountains and praying my ass off that that I was going to be okay. I had, during my travels with the Fatty Egg Girl people, I had stopped in Wyoming and met a, name, a man named Mickey when, um, you know, upon a show. And Somehow he got a hold of me. We were dating before I went um, back to Kauai, and and somehow he got a hold of me. I was seven months pregnant, and he called me up, and I was like, "I'm pregnant, and you know, I'm sorry, you know, that, but it's nice to hear your voice. But I'm going to be here, and I'm going to have this baby." And he said, "I want to be there with you." And he was in Iowa, and he drove across the country in his VW bus to come and um, be a family with me. We were together again while I was seven months pregnant with somebody else's baby. And he went to the delivery room with me and I gave birth um, 
just after turning 19 to a beautiful um, baby boy. And his umbilical cord was tied into two true knots, which are pretty crazy for labor and delivery nurses listening. Two true knots are crazy. Just to have one true knot in the umbilical cord is crazy. But I just know that it was just such a stressful um, pregnancy that my son was just twisting about. And when my son Levi was born, he was like this little old man, um, such a wise, wise soul. He always just looked like this wise old man. It was so neat. And suddenly this feeling that I had walked around with for my entire life of homelessness had lifted. And I realize now that I, it's not that I was homeless. It was that I had this tremendous lack and need and hunger for human connection. And when I became Levi's mother, my human connection was there. And so my whole life really began from that point forward. And I went back to school and started in a community college in Carson City. And one day at that community college, I remember seeing this flyer on the window with a friend of mine talking about um, a, a breathwork class about kundalini, kundalini energy. And I just knew I had to go. And so it was a free class. And so I met this um, guru and this group and they were like, you know, we're offering this class, but it's, I think it was just $400, but it's $400. And um, we all sat around and meditated and I felt tremendous energy in the room. I mean, I was a, a dropped in and I was like, oh my God, that was so cool. And then I found out that the class is going to be $400. So I was like, there's no way that I can afford that. And then one day, um, Sharam, the guru, called me up. And the minute I picked up the phone, back before I had a cell phone, I heard his voice. And in his hello, I felt immediate peace. And so I was like, no matter what, I'm going to find a way and go to that class. I went to that class and went to many, many more afterwards, and we meditated hard. He came from Turkey at that time, and so he had many people that were also from Turkey. And the psychedelic experiences I had from deep meditation work at that time were just incredible. I mean, I grew so much. There were places that I went in meditation that I didn't even know existed, doorways into my own heart where I would find spaces that were more vast than anything, like, like nothing but vastness. And we would meditate and have periods of connection and, and just ultimate love. And we would sing songs. And what was spectacular and significant was not only these feelings of having almost psychedelic experiences from breath work and meditation, but this light in the people who worked with Sharam's eyes. I mean, it was a light. You know, if you've ever been around people that are really spiritual and you see this light inside of them, it was there. It was so incredible. So in Carson City, this like desolate kind of place, I was going to school, had a, a man to be there, to be the father of my kids, met this uh, guru and just dove into spirituality. And then everything clicked and I was going to school to become a teacher. But after taking a special ed cl uh, class, I knew that I could, I could be a nurse. So I started nursing school and nursing school kind of took over my life, um, the prerequisites and and the school itself. So meditating with Sharam kind of fell away. But 
It was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I still dream of him and meeting with him. He was such a spiritually high, high, incredible being. I had another son during that time. And uh, I got to raise my two little boys, moved around. Um, I always loved living by the forest because I just loved um, being able to get into the forest. And I still, to this day, get into the forest. Um, the father of my two little boys was amazing. We built tree houses and played games and it was just fantastic. But I worked, chipped away going to nursing school. And I graduated in 2007 and I had more fun in nursing school than I had ever had in my entire life. It was just so much fun to compete and the camaraderie and the laughter and the creativity and the challenge of really diving into my personal intelligence was just insane. I had so much fun. I graduated with honors and on that stage, um, I was awarded um, the as an award, a medal for the being the class cheerleader and didn't really think anything of that, got right into the ICU um, moved around, ended up buying a house in Lake Tahoe, divorced that first husband, and I met my current husband. And it was kind of interesting because I really, really wanted to find somebody that resonated with me a little bit more than my first husband. And it was hard. Anytime you go through a divorce and a move, oh, gosh, it was, it was a super challenge. So... Anyway, um, I'm working night shifts in the ICU and I'm talking and a friend says she knows somebody. So, so um, this man comes to my door one day. We finally get to meet and I open the door. And the minute that I open the door, I know that he's the one. I mean, no doubt. And that night we ate polenta and we drank wine and we sat on my couch. And that was the first day that he came into my house and he had never left ever since. Um, it's just quite an incredible, incredible experience. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to share a little bit of my story. There's so much more that I can tell, and I'm really hopeful and excited to eventually share a little bit more. I started this podcast, and it was called Bones of a Nurse, and I love the word bones. And in its... um development, it's changed to brave to the bone. And I really wanted to share a little bit of my story because looking back, I can see that in my bones was that bravery and that courage that can just take you to the next thing, to the next most best thing, that bravery that you need to rebuild your badass, the courage that it takes to heal your own hero. So I hope you'd enjoyed this little segment.